The Rockies bring a former foe aboard, and we will once again look for some insight from the FIP leaderboards. Like death and taxes, Dodgers get a Dodger. I have not had the three go-throughs yet. It works great in a fantasy. I'm just glad I am not at the dentist. Fantasy Baseball in 15 on The Athletic. Welcome to Fantasy Baseball in 15. For Wednesday, July 1st, I'm Al Melchior, and I am kicking off this new month here with Derek Van Riper, DVR. Um, it's it's pretty much uh, something that we expected to happen, but still a, a, a bummer uh, that it has been made official that there will be no minor league baseball season in 2020. Um, so, you know, that's something we've been anticipating and, uh, you know, I've been anticipating some player movement with the transaction freeze being lifted a few days ago. We have our first uh, trade, uh, as far as I know, uh, since that uh, that freeze was lifted. And Jorge Mateo goes from the A's to the Padres in exchange for a player to be named later. So you, as the skipper of the alternate universe Padres, I'm going to turn to you uh, for some trade analysis. Yeah, Jorge Mateo is pretty interesting. He spent most of last season playing shortstop at AAA. The Padres are very set on the left side of their infield. I think with Oakland, there was a thought that Mateo would be in the mix probably to play some second base, but they had Tony Kemp and Franklin Barreto as a possible platoon. So to be the, the third player at that position was not really ideal. Uh, and I believe Jorge Mateo is also out of minor league options. So there was going to be a point, even with expanded rosters, where the A's were probably going to be faced with a pretty difficult choice. And I think sending him to San Diego, you know, it's a fresh start with an organization that maybe needs some depth behind Jerks and Profar. Uh, we have seen Mateo play the outfield a little bit in the minor leagues, so maybe he can provide a right-handed hitting complement for Trent Grisham and be on the small side of platoon in center field. Uh, we have speculated a little bit about the universal DH in San Diego before. Josh Naylor, Will Myers, kind of a, a platoon there, or Franchi Cordero and Will Myers, kind of a platoon there. So there are a couple of paths in San Diego that maybe weren't there for Mateo in Oakland, but I still see him as more of a part-time player. The thing that's most interesting about him is speed, and I think the fact that he's shortstop eligible could maybe drive him to... Uh, even be like a $1 or $2 sort of play for NL-only leagues. I think he goes from being an AL-only reserve to a dollar days sort of player in mono-league formats. So uh, needs an opportunity, of course, to become mixed-league relevant, but it wouldn't take much for that to happen, given how difficult I think it's going to be to find speed this season. Yeah, and anybody that's got any sort of shot at playing time with stolen base potential, uh, obviously that raises their profile, puts puts them on our collective radar uh, for sure. Um, we have another move as well. Well, and actually, before we talk about the Rockies uh, signing Matt Kemp, uh, probably the biggest news in the past 24 hours or so has been uh, the news of Ian Desmond opting out from the 2020 season. Uh, and uh, not too long after that announcement was made, uh, and, and Desmond made it on his Instagram account, uh, if, if you have not read that uh, posting from Ian Desmond, he touches on a lot of different uh, aspects of things going on in baseball right now. Very, very insightful post from Ian Desmond. Um, but not not long after that post was made public, um, the Rockies went out and signed Matt Kemp to a minor league deal. 
Now, Kemp had a really horrible 2019 season, Spent uh, started with the Reds, made 62 plate appearances with them, and um, he had a rib injury and, and just never got on track. But he's two years removed now from a pretty good season with the Dodgers where he hit 290, uh, slugged 481. And, of course, Matt Kemp's got Coors Field now uh, potentially as a, uh, as, a, as a home venue. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the 2019 numbers, and I have to wonder if Matt Kemp was just playing hurt when we did see him. The numbers were far from what we're accustomed to, and and that's even adjusting for a guy that's past his peak at this point. Landing in Colorado, I mean, anybody who finds playing time in Colorado can go onto the fantasy mixed league radar. It's just a question of how much playing time there's going to be. Uh, you kind of wonder if... In that outfield configuration, if you might see Kemp working mostly against lefties, he could platoon you know, with Sam Hilliard, he could platoon with David Dahl, he could platoon with Charlie Blackman. Think of all those players. Blackman's not going to platoon, of course. So he fits. He could also just be the DH complement to Daniel Murphy. You know, There's, there's a, a lot of ways they could play him, but I'm just not expecting Matt Kemp to be more than a small side platoon guy, at least initially in this 2020 season. Uh, Makes him interesting for DFS, makes him interesting for NL-only formats, but that's probably where my interest stops at this point. I think that's fair, and I think in any other league, it's not like you would necessarily have to uh, you know, even go after him with a, a late round pick or a reserve round pick, because uh, I think that the expectations are you know probably pretty universal that he's going to fill that sort of role and uh, not, not have a, a ton of fantasy appeal. So uh, I'm certainly uh, on board with that, uh, that analysis. Uh, well, DVR, I want to continue on a, a discussion that I started with Michael Beller on Tuesday's show. Uh, and uh, I, I won't necessarily go through the whole uh, uh, process of, of, you know, how I arrived on this topic, but, but basically um, I saw a tweet where there was a reference to FIP being, a good predictor uh, of ERA, and it surprised me. DVR. So uh, we, D, uh, I'm sorry, um, Michael Beller and I, we we talked about some ERA um, underachievers from 2019, and specifically we talked about Jose Quintana and Joe Musgrove. But before we flip over and talk about some possible overachievers, both from last year and from even further back, is that something that surprises you that FIP could be useful in? predicting ERA um, because it's it's a stat that frankly I had really given short shrift to I was still using it so when I heard that episode on my way to the grocery store on (laughs) Tuesday morning I I was a little surprised that you dismissed it but you are also a lot better at math than me so I think you had good reasoning (laughs) for looking into some other things Uh, so I mean I think I I think look I think there's an argument to be made that sometimes we get a little comfortable with certain metrics and Perhaps my clinginess to FIP wasn't me knowing something. It might have been me being afraid to dig in more to uh, Sierra and some of the other ERA estimators that are out there. Not that they're all like scary or anything like that. But um, anyway, I, I still use FIP. I, I just think what FIP usually does for me is it kind of sends up a signal to look more closely at a player. When the FIP and the ERA are pretty far apart in either direction. I just want to figure out why. That, that's that's mainly how I use it. I don't necessarily look at it and say, that's the true talent level. Close the book, I'm done. I'm more saying, hey, why did it go so wrong or why did it go so right relative to the expectation from that set of skills? And that's a great way to use it. And we're actually going to 
kind of go through that process uh, right now. Um, so let's start with taking a look at a few pitchers who were big overachievers last year. And what I mean by that is uh, pitchers whose uh, whose ERA was maybe a run, a full run, or even more than a full run, lower than their FIP, uh, or at least close to a run. And by far, the biggest overachiever among uh, any qualified pitcher who had a an actual ERA below four was Dakota Hudson, well over a, a one-run difference uh, between the FIP and his actual ERA. But right around that one-run differential, um, adding to the, the list with Hudson, Jeff Samarja, Mike Fires, Hunjin Ryu, Clayton Kershaw, and Julio Tehran, all pitchers that had ERAs under four last year, all pitchers with um, a FIP that was close to uh, a run greater. Um, or maybe even in some cases more. So um, out of that list, is there anybody that, um, you know, you'd want to do that, that digging um, and, and see what the discrepancy is and see if there's something there? Yeah. I mean, I, I think Kershaw is, is one where I feel like in a, a shortened season, a veteran pitcher like Clayton Kershaw is the least likely type of pitcher to have restrictions uh, someone who knows how to ramp up and, and train on his own someone who's gone through this so many times before just this being a big league season of any kind i feel like you can trust someone like that about as much as you can trust any pitcher and to see almost a full run difference a 0.83 difference between his fip and his era it's a little bit unexpected it kind of comes from i think the home run rate being higher than we're used to how much of that was the rabbit ball and how much of that was actual skills lost Kershaw? I think that's the question I'd probably try to unpack as I determine what direction he's headed in next. The first name you mentioned, though, is Dakota Hudson. And I've looked into this before, Al. I can't figure out how he did it. Is there anything you have seen in looking at Dakota Hudson? Because it's not just FIP that he beat. He beat Sierra pretty badly, too. And I know you're probably... At least prior to this recent discovery, you were a little more of a Sierra guy than a FIP guy. Oh, definitely. Uh, but Sierra doesn't I, like him either. Sierra's even worse at 508. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, yeah, I've been really conflicted about Dakota Hudson. And, and up to some point in this past offseason, I, I was just dismissing him, you know, probably for that very reason, looking all the the ERA estimators, FIP, Sierra, XFIP, and, um, you know, just seeing how they painted a, a much worse picture. Um you know, than his, his uh, actual stats. And just, you know, if you look at the strikeout to, to walk ratio, uh, you know, not neither ratio is very good on its own. So the one thing that Dakota Hudson does really well is get ground balls. But the thing is that he, he does more than just get ground balls. He gets really low ground balls. And that was something this, this off season that I discovered in some research that I did that launch angle matters a ton for pitchers, especially in terms of the BABIP that they allow. And Hudson had a 274 BABIP last year. So uh, the, the ground balls were really kind of a, a, a double whammy in a good way for him and that it kept his home run rate well below the major league average at 1.13 per nine, but uh, also that 274 BABIP rate, those two things together, really helped to lower his, his ERA, even though, uh, you know, his strikeouts certainly weren't helpful in fantasy. He had a 1.41 whip. So he really leaned really heavily on, um, on the 16 wins and the 335 ERA. But I think, I think the 335 ERA is, I won't say sustainable, but 
maybe closer to sustainable than FIP or Sierra would would lead us to believe. He also stranded a lot of runners too. So I think that's where we're going to for sure see some regression. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that also jumps out as I look at some of his minor league numbers, Dakota Hudson didn't really have a walks problem at AA and and AAA. And I know big league hitters are the best hitters you're going to find. And, you know, if you're nibbling, they're going to, sit back and, and take their walks. But I, I think there are a few ways he could also just improve those baseline skills. And, and if that were to happen, then I'd be a little more comfortable buying back in uh, to something, at least in the high threes for ERA. I don't know if low threes is where I would go. It's interesting, though, that all of the projection systems over at Fangraphs have him uh, at at least 425 for an ERA. I think the highest one is Steamer at 462. So he's a, a very unique player in that the projections don't like him, but he might have this one specific skill that enables him to be at least better than average with the ERA, despite being below average with strikeout rate and below average with whip. Yeah. Well, and that raises another question uh, and, and one that I dug into a little bit, because if you have a pitcher like Dakota Hudson and, you know, 2020 season will give us more info on this, but you know, there, maybe there are some pitchers who can, you know, who can beat FIP on a, on a consistent basis, season to season. And so I went back to the last five years combined and looked to see who consistently uh, beat WIP. And Hunjin Ryu, one of last year's apparent um, overachievers, he has overachieved, if you want to call it that, by close to a full run over the last five seasons combined. Mike Fires and Julio Tehran, um, both more than a, a half run differential uh, in favor of their ERAs um, over the last five years combined. And Jack Flaherty, who just missed the list that I gave earlier in terms of the 2019 overachievers, didn't quite make that cutoff of being really close to a, a full runoff. But um, he's right there with Fires and Tehran in terms of um, over his career, um, you know, two plus seasons, uh, beating beating FIP. And each one, you know, if you again, if you do that process DVR that you described, if you dig a little bit, you can find an explanation for each one of those four pitchers as to why you could buy into them, um, buy into their ERAs more than their FIPS. Yeah, and one leaderboard that I just pulled up while we were talking is a Statcast leaderboard for sweet spot percentage, which I previously had looked at mostly for hitters. But when you said that, you know, launch angles have a, a, an impact, of course, on on BABIP for for pitchers, and I, I'm just kind of starting to unpack this this extra idea that hey, you know. Maybe there is a, a certain type of contact you allow frequently that's actually really good contact for you as a pitcher. And you're going to find maybe a lot of guys on the upper third or even the upper quarter of that list who beat their FIP because they get hitters to hit a lot of fly balls. Like when they do hit the ball in the air, they're not necessarily hitting the ball all that hard. Occasionally, yeah, mm-hmm. a mistake turns into a home run, but um, I. I've come away from this episode with something new to look into, I guess, is, is what I'm saying. And uh, I, I was overlooking sweet spot percentage, I think, for hitters, too, because I think there are certain types of players who just break the indicators, break the advanced stats and and don't fit the mold. And our ability to determine how predictable uh, the performance of those players can be often gives us an opportunity to get a leg up over the field. 
Exactly. And that's why I think this is so interesting. And yes, to have been more dismissive of FIP than I probably should have been the fact that people for good reason use it as an estimator. Um, you know, when we do find the outliers that, that gives us an edge for sure. And people can also uh, get an edge from uh, something you just wrote recently for the athletic uh, DVR. Um, you um, recapped a, a few of the recent developments. So that is our featured read for today. Fantasy news recap, early roster surprises, Adrian Morahone love and more uh, by our very own Derek Van Riper. So uh, do check that out. And that's going to be all for this episode of Fantasy Baseball in 15. So for Derek Van Riper, I'm Al Melkier, and we'll be right back here on Thursday. Mm-hmm.